What's up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Dragzine Podcast, and this week on the other side of the screen is Roger Conley. Roger, what is going on? How you doing, Brian, man? It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, we, We've had uh, saw you in Orlando earlier this year, and then we did our uh, our COVID conversation during tech inspection. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a hot minute since I guess we both did the same track at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all good. It seems like we're getting a little bit closer to normal in the drag racing world, so I'm happy to see that. Yeah, it's, it, I've been to a few events this year, and outside of people wearing masks, I mean, it really kind of feels like like back to normal, really, honestly. Yeah, I agree. Which I'm perfectly fine with, and, you know, the mask doesn't bother me a whole lot when I, you know, it depends on the event. Some of them really require, but if I'm like, in a large group of crowded people, I'll pop mine back on. But I mean, otherwise, I'm just uh, happy that we're not hunkered down in our, our homes again, waiting for a uh, intimate doom. Exactly, exactly. Back so, to our world. Yeah, and you know, racing is a uh, it's kicked off. You know, kind of a hard and strong this year so far. We've uh, seen a lot of interesting stuff, and I wanted to bring you on the show because you open up a, a veritable buffet of topics, which I love to talk about because you've you've had some pretty cool jobs and kind of experiences in the racing industry. And for those who don't know who you are and what you've done, uh, kind of give us the uh, the rundown on Roger Conley. Well, I mean, I started way, way back. I started actually, uh, I was just a, mecha- a mechanic in a shop open up around the corner that I built nitro systems and got me hooked on pro mod stuff. And I went to work for Bill Kuhlman early on in my early twenties for a couple of years working on his pro mod. Um, and then, then didn't really care for life on the road and transitioned back and uh, in Southern California ended up working for uh, Brad Urban at the carburetor shop. And then from there, uh, did the carburetor thing for four or five years. Actually worked at uh, John Force Racing for a few years before going to Race Pack for a little over 15 years and then uh, into the turbo world, as we know, Precision Turbo and now Hearts Turbo. I didn't know you worked for Bill Coleman. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah, he taught. I learned, I learned a lot of stuff working for him at a, at a very young age. He, he, I had him on the show. He's an interesting guy. He's like... He's one of those dudes that you listen to what he has to say because he built history. Like that's like, if you ever like, it's very rare in life. You get to be around somebody that was like, yeah, I kind of helped start pro mod. So, you know, that that's, that's wild. (laughs) Yeah. The uh, I've had a good relationship with him since. Um, I mean, for in a lot of ways, he's like a second dad to me. I've spent a lot of time with him had a lot of conversations and, uh, it was funny not long ago. Well, now probably five, six years ago, he still had the first car that went 200 miles an hour and it was actually kind of in the rafters and it was just a, a chassis with the, with the body hanging on it and uh, everything else was stripped off it. And I asked him a few times, I'm like, why don't you uh, let me have that car and let me restore it. Let me just tinker on it and start restoring it slowly. Oh, I don't know. You know, I might do it. My kid might do it and nothing ever happened. And then he had a really bad fire and explosion at his shop from a, from a propane tank. And uh, well, the chassis is still there, but it's kind of rusty now. <laughs> the rest of it's junk. <laughs> that's but, uh, a piece of racing history hanging in the rafters. That's like something out of a straight up movie. Oh, yeah. What, what's cool is when you go to Summit Racing Equipment's main headquarters up in Akron, up where my parents are from, one of his other cars is uh, on display up there in their main shop, too. Mm-hmm. No, I would say the, one of the things that I admire most about Bill was is that when he did something, he did everything he possibly could himself. Meaning, when he wanted to build a different kind of car, you know, that no one else had, he 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 built a plug, built a mold, and built a body. Uh, when Toter Homes first came on scene, they were very expensive. He went and bought a chassis from Carl Moyer, brought it home, built a frame, skinned it, and made his own just he's that guy he just builds his own cars can build his own cars had built his own cars and and engines and and all kind of stuff so he's very you know he's a very smart very common sense down-to-earth guy that is very determined to get done whatever it is he puts his mind to it's interesting there's a like you might not see that to the same level in the racing industry and drag racing these days there's still a lot of guys that do it 
you know, what's it like for you seeing and being around those guys that have that, uh, that have that spark or they could just, they do amazing things that a lot of other people have to farm out. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's the kind of stuff I enjoy seeing because I'm an attention to detail guy. And I like, I like when I get around people who do, you know, almost everything on their vehicles. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a unique situation, but it doesn't make them, it doesn't always make it a better car. It just, it's neat to see the drive, the determination. I, I guess I'm very passionate about the sport as a whole. You know, I'm involved in, in racing because it's what I love to do. And I, I, you know, at an early age, I decided I wanted to do what I love doing and I'm going to try and make money at the same time so I can, you know, keep a roof over my head. So, you know, it's been a very passion driven and determination driven thing. And that's, like I said, that's what you see in a lot of these cars. Um, you know, there's the guys who've built the complete car, the chassis, the engine, painted the car themselves. I mean, just, you know, and you just sit back and go, wow. And basically, they just bought the parts they absolutely had to. I've seen a few of those. You know, it's always cool when you talk to uh, bracket racers are really like you see a lot of those guys do it. And I've talked to a few of them like, yeah, I literally did everything, but I didn't build the transmission and I didn't build the converter. I just told them what I wanted. But they, you know, and it's not like they built junk. It's just wild to see like you look at like I've done a double take before. Like, you painted this car too? Oh, yeah, I painted it in my shop. This is an amazing paint job that an average man would pay a lot of money for. Absolutely. Yeah. And it gets, you know, some of that stuff's harder and harder to do in today's world. So it's a little more, it's like the paint world, right? It's like painting a car today is much more difficult than it was 25 years ago, but getting a bill at anything today is much easier than it was 25 years ago. So there's been some major shifts in, in the way we do things overall on a, on a racing vehicle. Isn't that kind of wild that, you know, you can, if you can think of it being made of an exotic material, you can get it done these days in racing. That to me, that blows my mind. Yeah. If it isn't already done. Yeah. If someone already hasn't done it, someone can go, Oh, I can make that. And that kind of leads into the question of, you know, what are some of the cool things you've seen and done in your world? Because they said, you've been all over the place and done a lot of interesting stuff. So let, let's hear some good, let's hear some cool stories. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'll take, I'll take you to a Coleman story. Right. And this is more of a wild thing. Right. So we're in Memphis in 19, it was 91 or 92. Um, and you know, had 17, 33, 15 back tires on this car, nitrous pro mod deal. And, um, they were just screwed to the rims back then in this, in this time went up there and when he went to do the burnout, he, he kind of stood on the throttle a little harder than he normally does. Well, the thing accelerated the rear tire so fast that it actually sucked both tires off the rims. Whoa. So it, it pulled all the rim screws where they were screwed into the bead. It pulled them all out. And the thing did it, it spun out and uh, right there on the starting line um, and went down on the chassis, of course, and then it came to a stop and the back wheels on the wheelie bars were just barely touching the wall. So yeah, we uh, <laughs> had to run back to the trailer and get back then like, but you'll get a floor jack. I mean, you know, it was just, you know, we, you know, got guys picking the car, opened the door, took the doors off, had the team of guys pick both sides of the car up. It was wild, but it was, a, it was an interesting experience, but it's stuff you don't think about. And then from there, since there were still no bead locks, uh, we ended up going to a dual rim screw setup where you actually screwed them from the side and from the top into the top of the bead. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a little gnarly. So that was, that was, that's one of the crazy, crazier Coleman stories, but, uh, like it's just every time you do something like that, you learn, right? Cause you never would have thought about the rate of acceleration of the back tire and how it, how it grows and tries to draw the tire off the bead. You know, it's just physics, right? And, and now we got guys going, you know, almost 260 miles an hour on a set of radial tires when they want to be brave and crazy and running out the back door at MIR, mm -hmm. which to me that to, to see those guys set those records like that. I've been at the track when, you know, when radial tire quarter mile records have been set, that just to me, that blows my mind. That that's insane. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think. I think that's pretty, I think for me, one of the biggest things in the last um, two years, I think that really has, has, I'll say blown me away is really how fast you can go or how quick and fast you can go in, in a stock style car. 
You know, I've seen late model Mustangs with a supercharger on them and a set of radials and really, I mean, full exhaust. Yeah, they got a tune in them and they might have something done to the engine and stuff like that. But from all out looks, it doesn't really look like anything close to a race car. I've seen them go 840s, no caging them. I mean, threw them out of the racetrack, honestly, <laughs> a couple of them. Um, but that's what's, you know, the technology and stuff. If, you know, if you ask me the question of what, what really shocks me about today's world versus 20 years ago, it's how, how freaking fast you can go. I mean, you could take, you know, I know guys have taken new GT 500s and really done nothing bolt on virtually nothing bolt on and just did tune tuning stuff to them. Um, and they're running low nines with them. There's already two or three of those cars. And it's like, Again, no cage. They're not legal to do that, but <laughs> they're doing it. And and you've been around the industry long enough to remember back in the day, that would have been front page of Hot Rod. You'd have been all over everything with a nine-second streetcar. Oh, yeah. And now it's just, you know, someone, you know, has worked hard in life. They went down to the dealership, picked that up. They do a little research. They go to a local Dynatune shop and – you know, your average civilian is all of a sudden armed with weapons grade horsepower. That's it, it's it's insane. No, it is. It's a it's a it, it like I said, it blows me away, and it makes honestly, it makes your job hard, more difficult as a tech inspector of any sort, right? Because here we are, teching these cars in, and of course, if you ask the the owners, well, how fast do you think this thing will go? Well, I don't know. I never had it to the track or. You know, the most of them that go that fast, they know how fast they go. And they also know they're not legal. I mean, they're not. I don't roll in not knowing what his car runs that goes that quick. So it uh, makes for an interesting, makes for an interesting scenario when you're trying to tech them in and then keep an eye on them. So, yeah, because racers are awesome at being their own worst enemy across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, I'm not like. Well, I guess I am. I'm kind of a safety Nazi because it's just, I've been around, again, to your point, I've been around a lot of races. I've seen a lot of bad things happen. And uh, I mean, I had a racer in Bradenton uh, slap the wall in a stock super stock car and uh, basically jammed on the brakes too hard, got sideways because he's stripe racing. Um, and I pitched the car and he tried to correct it and it slid and it, and it just at a hundred and probably 60 miles an hour, it pancaked the wall perfectly so hard. It knocked the rear end over about three inches and broke, it sheared the bolts off at the brake caliper. And then when it came back off the wall, it spiked the back wheel tire and axle and rotor off of it complete. Whoa. Like it was crazy. And, uh, that car had a had a it was a Cobra Jet car. It's got a race tech seat in it, which is the safest seat you can buy. They're made out of New Zealand. It had a race tech seat in it. Yet he was knocked unconscious. So he was unconscious for like a couple of minutes, and um, we finally got him up. And when he came to, he was kind of out of it. Didn't really know where he was. Knew his name, stuff like that. We sent him in. He had a couple of broken ribs. I told his crew chief, I says, you know, the reason he was knocked out and the reason he broke ribs is because he was racing with the seatbelts loose. If his seatbelts would have been tight in that seat, he could have went end over end in that car and just walked away with it without a scratch. I said, but the fact that he's racing and he goes, yeah, you're right. He says, he's actually complaining about that seat the day before saying how much he didn't like it because he couldn't see around it. So the safety stuff, I mean, there's a lot of people that can attest, but there's also a lot of people out there who can't attest to it because they, you know, they didn't walk away from an accident. Not that I want to talk about bad things, but at the end of the day, it's like when you see it, over and over again and people get hurt and bad things happen. That's, you know, the guys, you know, they bitch at us in tech sometimes, but uh, about safety stuff, but it's like, man, I'm, I'm looking out for your own good. Now you're mad at me. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, it being around the track and some of the things I see guys skirting safety related, it's just, you know, especially fire gear, go talk to Lyle Barnett. Ask him what it's like to, you know, to be in an easy bake oven of a car and then tell me that it's uncomfortable for you to wear gloves racing. Like, no, you know, it's like you said, with the belts, I've seen guys and gals with belts so loose that like it me, it makes me anxious. Like when I see someone on the starting line, get ready to make a hit and they're leaning forward Mm -hmm. like this in the car. I'm like, dude, dude, that's, that, that's a no go. Don't, don't do that. I stopped two guys at Commerce um, 
at the ticket check, um, our starting line guy radioed down, you know, they didn't have no gloves. They were running. One was running nines, one was running eights. Rolled up on them. The one guy said, hey, you got some gloves? And he pointed over, and they were in the passenger seat. Oh. So other guy, he pulled up, and I told him, stick both your hands up in the air. And he goes, why don't you stick your hands up in the air? He sticks his hands up in the air, no gloves. I go, where's your gloves? Same thing. He's on the passenger floorboard. I says, bro, I says, be one thing if you forgot them at home. They're in your trailer, you know, whatever. But, I mean, you, got, you know, got up to the starting line, didn't have them. But, I mean, they're in your car? Come on, man. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. They don't until it happens to them. But I'll tell you what, I had a guy. We were talking about the glove thing there, and a guy happened to be standing there, and he says, uh, "My buddy on a real bad fire without his gloves on." And you know what he said? And he goes, "He told me he said this is one thing no one thinks about." He goes, "The most humility thing in the world to me was two weeks I couldn't wipe my own butt because I had my wife wipe my butt after I went to the bathroom." He goes, "Talk about humiliating, degrading." He says, "You'll never catch me without gloves on again." Oh, never thought about that, but good point. That, that's a great way to say safe. That's a great way to sell safety gear right there. You know, the, those safety gear companies should be thanking you for that, that, that little soundbite right there. <laughs> right. But I mean, these are just some of the facts. It's, you know, I ran a nitrous car for a couple of years in the mid 2000 or 2006 area. And I had 20 layer suit and, and people would be like, you're crazy. You're in Southern California wearing a 20 suit. I said, listen, man. I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't race with less than a 15. I go, but I guess I would, wouldn't race with less than a 20. But I go, at the end of the day, I said, if you're on fire, I go, if I could stop time and jump in the car with you while you're on fire and say, hey, bro, you want to kick in that extra 400 and give me five more layers of Nomex? I said, I guarantee you 100% of the time you'd say yes. So, so a little bit of discomfort here isn't worth what, what, if it ever comes into play, that's what people don't think about, right? They don't, they never think about they, they think about their whole car, right, in a way that it's going to be optimized, right? So they think about my perfect tune-up, whether it's a power adder car, an NA car, my perfect tune-up, the perfect traction, the perfect 60-foot. Like, this is what my car runs, and this is what it runs. Everything went perfect, and the DA was this. And, like, everything's optimized. But then when they think about safety gear, they think it the opposite way, right? They think, well, I don't really need it. That's never going to happen to me. They don't think about a scenario. They don't go – they should think about safety equipment as worst-case scenario. They should go, man – this is all my safety stuff. What is the worst case scenario? I need to make sure my shoots are right. I need to make sure, you know, from front to back on the car, whatever it is. And uh, if they really applied the same mentality they did to the performance side of the car, we wouldn't see as, as many problems as we do. And, and going off of that, you know, we'll do some, uh, you know, some, some tech related stuff because that's part of what you do, you know, and you, you have to be the bad guy, like guys like you and Sears and other guys, you have to be the, the face of evil, you know, as a tech director, you know, how do you look at creating rules that are going to be legitimately fair? And when I say legitimately fair, I mean by those who actually race and not those who cry online about, well, I need you to do this for me for a combo that's not proven at all, but I want to be able to roll out, just be fast. So, there's a, there's a lot of different approaches. Um, if it was, if the scenario was someone's approaching with a combo and asking for it to be legalized, um, you know, typically we run as a committee for the NMCA and NMRA sanction. And we would, we would err on the side of, of making sure the car wouldn't come out and just dominate if we possibly could. So we kind of do our homework, our research. We got some engine builders we work with on the side chassis guys i mean there's there's a bunch of people in the background that that are unbiased and help us with some of that stuff because we can't be experts in all those fields but if it was a new combination um which we, we try to err on the side and then if we got to make a parity adjustment down the road then so be it um but as a whole um i i i think i brought a unique perspective and i could be wrong i mean other people could have before me but i never heard about it um I bring a unique perspective into the parity side of things with these heads up classes with being able to look at data and really see if the car is optimized. Um, you know, especially when you're talking about some of these classes like limited street with multiple combinations or NA 10 five, um, where you got, you know, some fast cars running sticks and some guys with automatics that are you know, a click or two behind. Cause so the, the, the ego of the, normal drag racer, um, you know, they always think, you know, they're doing everything the best way they can. So, but data kind of helps tell the story, right? I mean, we can sit here and talk about how great you are or can be or might be or what the car has done, but actually when we pull 
the actual data up and start looking at the performance of the car, the rate of acceleration, you know, what the what the middle of the car is doing, whether it's a clutch or a, or a torque converter car, how efficient it is. Um, and then on EFI stuff, you know, looking at timing, looking at fuel maps, looking at air fuel ratio, you can, you know, I understand that stuff enough to know if they're really leaning on the car, or if they're just, you know, kind of sandbagging and, and trying to get the rules stacked, you know, in their favor. Oh, that totally makes sense. You got to look at that from a holistic approach because th there's ways you can, you can, uh, I'm not going to say fabricate, but you can definitely pad a time slip to make it, you know, oh, well, look, you know, it's, it's optimized. Well, let's turn over a couple of rocks. Let's look a little deeper. Yeah, no. And it's, it's knowing things, you know, I had a racer at the end of last year complain. He's got a central supercharged car in, in, you know, our street outlaw, which would be like X and he gets his time slip back and, and, you know, our, our champion last year had out back half him on our, on the split times. And he's like, look at that thing just completely out back half me. I'm like, well, that's what a turbo car is supposed to do. Look at the front half. You know, it's like, it's like, that's how those cars perform. You know, like you'll never see, you're not going to see a nitrous car out back half a, a turbo car. I mean, it's just, if it don't run on the front, don't run down low, it ain't, it ain't going to get there. It ain't going to run the kind of numbers they need to get there. But you know, it's, you know, it's every, you know, I'll say 99% of the time, the racer you're talking to is lobbying for their own stuff. And they're, you know, if they're pointing fingers at someone else, it's, it's, you know, because they have, you know, they can't figure out the other person's combination and under, don't understand how they can have this level of success and be faster than they are. So it's a, it's a slippery slope. And, you know, at the same time, I like to be logical about it so that I can apply the information and tell and explain to the racers. And so they don't walk away thinking it either fell on deaf ears or that guy's, you know, a box of rocks or, you know, whatever the case may be. So, so looking at some class like, you know, X275 slash street outlaw, and you run into a situation where rules needed to be adjusted, you know, from a rulemaker standpoint, you know, some people just say, well, just throw weight at it, which is usually not might not necessarily be the way you can do it you know how how do you adjust you know what 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 are you looking at to adjust on these combos and these rules you know how do you approach that um i you know and in, in, in today's world most of the time it does get done by weight in a class like x but in other classes i'll say um sometimes it can be a pulley change to the blower car sometimes it can be a nitrous jet minimum for a nitrous car um, you know the turbo cars there's not much you can do with a turbo car other than limit the size of the compressor wheel um, and or how they cool the charge. You know, you might limit their, you know, not give them a water to air intercooler. I mean, there's there's a lot of things you can you can play with depending on, on what we're talking about to, to slow the cars down or speed them up. Even sometimes you just sometimes you got to look at it and say, well, we don't need to slow these guys down. We need to pick these guys up how do we get there? And then to your point, that's where the weight thing becomes an issue, right? Because you say, well, we'll just knock 50 pounds off and we'll wait. Well, what kind of weight was that guy running at? Do we know he was running at minimum weight or within five or 10 or was he already heavy and can he get down to that weight? So there's, it's easy to sit down and spout, spout off rules, but you really got to do your homework and know what the, op, what the, what the capacity of the racer is that, or group of racers that you're trying to either help or slow down, you know, um, cause sometimes you can't get there from here. We've, we've stumbled across that more than once, um, you know, in the NMC and MRI stuff where we come up with a solution and, uh, then we do our research before we release the rules and go, Oh man, that ain't going to work. You know, they don't, they don't make that pulley or, you know, there's no in between or, you know, we can't put no more weight on them. They're already too heavy or they run overweight and we can't stack it on there. Cause it's, you know, but the biggest challenge, honestly, in a, in a parity situation for, for me personally, and I think, I think I speak for more than just me is looking. So if you, if, if you go back two years and uh, at sweet 16 and we had over, I think it was over 70 X 275 cars show up for sweet 16. Now, granted, because we only had um, a couple classes, a lot of guys slid into X who were, who had run other classes, but they wanted to be there to participate, you know? So when you start looking at the guys who run at the top, you really got to look at what we call max effort, right? If you're going to make an adjustment and you're going to say nitrous versus 
this kind of blower versus turbo versus this other kind of blower or whatever the case may be versus NA, whatever it is. If you're going to really use the data that you see on a time slip, you really got to know if that's a max effort team. Um, and, and what sucks about that is if, if you're making rules and we do based off what the max effort team does to, to keep the parity there, um, every time you make that adjustment, it knocks, it knocks your, your B level team down. Um, and, and cause not everyone can afford to be a max effort team, whether it's monetarily or if it's time, you know, so it, it, so then what happens is you see, that's when you start seeing diminishing car counts because you, you start getting so many max effort players. And when you get guys that get knocked down so many times, it just becomes one of those situations where, well, I might as well not even bother showing up anymore because I barely qualify. You know, I can't run in the top eight. And, um, and then stuff like X, there's been so many, I think it was, I think it was two years ago, there was like over 50 races available across the country to run X275 in different places. Well, when you have that many opportunities, there's not enough cars to spread out 50 different ways. So that hurts on car count stuff too. Roger, before we move on to the next question, I have to uh, thank our episode sponsor here, AFR Airflow Research, the original CNC ported cylinder head. From the street enthusiast to the hardcore racer, AFR has designed a cylinder head for your application with the original goal in mind. Just go fast. Now, for me, with a couple of my builds, I, you know, when I was at Darlington for Woostock, I approached John Sears and I was like, this is what I got. I want to get in where I can fit in. And John was very upfront and honest and broke down what I could do, what I couldn't do. You know, this is what you should probably do. And I think some people get a little uh, out of sorts with these rules and you rule makers. And where I'm going to go with this is if a racer has a valid reason that a rule should be looked at, you know, how should they go about it? You know, what, what's their best course of action other than going online and screaming at the top of their lungs? Um, the NMRA and NMCA's uh, policy is you, you send an email to the rules committee. Every email that comes into us gets reviewed by the committee of five people unconditionally, no matter what, no matter what it is, you can come in and say, I think every car should be green. It gets brought across the board and, and we discuss it and, um, if there's a disagreement, we vote on it. And if, you know, if we don't all agree unanimously, we vote on it. There's five of us and, you know, you win some, you lose some. I've, I've won some and I've lost some that I fought for, but, um, but, but we do it via email. So, which that's a great question. I'm glad you bring it up because I still get guys who they want to text me. They want to message me on Facebook. They want to, to, you know, just come to the track and talk to me at the scale, um, you know, and I've, I've had that, I've actually had that quite a few times where they'll talk to me at the scale and I'll say, yeah, just go ahead and send an email and we'll review it. And then they go to the next race, they come over to scale. Hey, did you figure anything out on what I asked you about? Uh, I didn't see an email. Well, I talked to you here and I said, yeah, and I asked you to email it. So that's a, you know, sometimes you get caught up in the heat of the moment at the racetrack and you're race, 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 and then you leave and you kind of are not as much. So, you know, sometimes they don't, or they think I already addressed it when they talk to me and it's just, I'm not, I may be the tech director, but I'm still not the be all end all decision maker. It takes the group um, to agree on it for it to become, make a change or add something in or do whatever it takes. And, and I think too, you have to be reasonable about your requests as well. And that that's, you know, like, like I said, when I was talking with John, you know, I told him, I said, you know, my engine, my package isn't anything special. It's all street stuff. You know, it's a street car yada 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 he said listen but you still have to run this this and this because what's not to say that again the issue comes down to just because you think it's going to run this doesn't mean that we let that in and it's the same thing that jason miller faces with the world cup and someone else comes with a max effort similar deal that falls in line with your rules and all of a sudden they've smashed everything yeah no i mean that's that's the biggest fear you know and it's across the it's I mean, parity and heads-up drag racing has got to be one of the most difficult things to continue to keep with the evolution of technology in our world. 
all these companies, whether it's nitrous, turbo, EFI, supercharger, roots, you know, screws, and 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 all they do all day is they got teams of engineers making better stuff, and uh, engine builders making better stuff, cylinder head guys making better stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where you had to conform to. There was only basically, you know a handful of platforms depending on what you chose for an engine combination and now you can go to david visner and you could build your own engine essentially i mean your own engine i want to build a you know a 90 degree v6 that's you know this many cubic inches this much stroke and you know i mean he literally will design it from scratch the block the whole the drivetrain the cylinder heads everything so it's it's a it's crazy when you think about stuff like that that just blows me away for for what i've seen over the years well, and I was thinking about this the other day when I was doing some research for my own project was, you know, I was looking at poking online, looking at, you know, converters and transmissions. And like, I, I think, again, it's one of those things that people don't realize, like the, the, the insertion of lockups and lockup technology into heads up racing, again, is one of those things where by itself, yeah, it helped. But when you mix that, with the engine technology, with the software and the tuning, with the people that know how to do it. And that's why we have radial tire cars running in the 340s now. Right, which is, you know, and I don't even know if you, I, I can't even say where I think the end is because I just don't know where the end is because I would have never believed they'd be where they are. So for me to say, where's the end? Yeah, I have no idea. I just, yeah. It's a, it's a good source of entertainment for sure. And it's fun to watch, um, you know, but by on the other side of the coin, it's, it's mind numbing to see them take those cars and do that. You know, I, I almost said the other day, I almost said, Oh, we'll never see a three, three thirty pass on radials. I almost said it being serious for one second that I was like, then it flashed back into my mind when I, when I thought they'll never run three forties. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to say it jokingly now, but I'm going to keep that, that idea bottled up in my chest and never say it seriously. Well, what's interesting about, about the three fifties and three forties deal. The first car to go three fifties was the Glock car with Kevin Rivenmark. The car Daniel Ferris was driving was that car. So the first car to go 340s was also the first car to go 350s. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Not a lot of people knew that. I started telling people that. And they're like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like, "Nope, same car." I didn't so, know. I didn't know that. I thought it, I didn't know. I thought that was a completely different car. Now it's just rewrapped. Nope, that's that's Kevin's former Kevin's car that uh, Proline put a deal with Ferris and Alipa together to lease that deal. So. But uh, yeah, that's the, the first car that went 350s, the same car that went three, four, first car to go 340s in South Georgia. Wow, that's, that's kind of nuts, but not surprising at the same time. Well, it tells you a few things, right? It tells you that really it's not, so the chassis can't say, well, it came up with some new chassis technology. Well, no, it's the same chassis. It's the same basic combination. I think, I think the engine might be a little different. I don't think it was a raised cam engine that went 350s. So there are some small changes, you know, there has been some supercharger developments, but the back to your other point, transmission stuff with lockups and converter drives and different transmission setups and stuff like that, um, I think plays a major role in it. And then we had very good atmospheric conditions, which helped a lot too. I, I joke now that, you know, we're in the age of the, uh, the fast and furious transmissions going down the track that they have like 11 bajillion gears here. <laughs> I'm shifting going down the track. Which, yeah, no, which, that's crazy. which again is another technological innovation. A lot of people don't understand. Well, you know, back in my day, we only needed two gears and a cloud of dust. Well, guess what? Got all those gears that gives that now unlocks even more potential about how you can tune a car where you can put the power band. What's the track doing this round? I mean, it, it opens up that toolbox and it's a little bit deeper for those tuners now. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it's it's when someone explains it to someone it makes sense but before that a lot of people have trouble wrapping their head around it and if you just tell them look if this thing makes peak power at this rpm and if i can just park it there for three and a half seconds it's just pulling peak power all the way down the racetrack well 
I've optimized the combination to go as fast as it can possibly go. And uh, then they kind of the light bulb goes on. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're at home trying to, you know, in your typical, you know, a bracket car, you're trying to do the math on, you know, RPM drop, figuring out your converter slip. And these guys, these guys laugh in multi-speed transmission. They're like slip. What's that? Watch this. Boom. You know, Mm -hmm. that, again that again it's it's all those pieces coming together like you said that was it was the chassis that went 350s with a slightly tweaked motor with the new f4 blower with some smarter tuning and then a different transmission and you know here we go right that's for a tenth at that and the and the quick you know as well as i do the quicker you go the harder it is to find a tenth i mean oh yeah it's more elusive the, the quicker you go it isn't it isn't as easy so yeah, it, it, it's horsepower in general. So you, if you talk to the guys that do uh, that do standing mile and half mile stuff, hearing them what they have to do to pick up power and like they you know they they pick up any mile an hour at all, and they're losing their minds. And I never understood it until I started looking. You know, it's harder to make that more power the faster that you're always go already going, and then you start looking at all the technology and the stuff that they do, and it all ties together. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh it's it's like i said and i don't know you wonder where technology stops right or does it ever really i mean the the thing is like nhra is taking a pretty hard stance with a lot of their stuff to the point where like you stick the fuel teams and they like they can't go out there and make new blocks anymore and make i mean they get they got stuff approved that they make now even though some of them make them in-house and stuff but they can't go out there and start spreading the cylinders and like doing some of the stuff they used to do back in the day. Um, I, I remember when I remember I was actually working at forces when they first did the first setback blower thing and they fabricated an intake manifold and they actually started testing it on the blower dyno before they ever put it on the car. And um, it was pretty, there was a lot of interesting stuff that I saw and learned and heard, heard come out of the room and, you know, what they were doing because the way the air forces out of the blower and what it was, how it was making the engine run. And, and uh, I mean, it was funny because they're always offsetting compressions and fueling and things like that to try to balance out the cylinders. And it was all just because of the direction that all the air was being forced out of the, out of the supercharger. And, you know, you know, coil one day just says, well, why don't we just move the supercharger back? And you, it's one of those things where you're like, that's a good idea. <laughs> as dumb as that sounds. <laughs> someone goes wait we could do that and then they go to the rule book and they go well it doesn't say we can't do it but here and again right it's like so they went on they took the task on of developing it and then it's like well now you got to extend the main shaft on the drive shaft of the thing and then they're getting flex on because those things are turning so hard and making a lot of power and then you're making braces and making snap and shafts making them out of different material i mean like it, the, the list is the pain, the pain list on stuff like that is when you see it in, when you're behind the scenes, it's pretty incredible. Um, but I mean, it had a major power advantage when they came out with it. So it did what they needed to do. It's interesting to you mentioned the NHRA limiting stuff and it it's a lot of it. It ties back to safety because they don't want to see, you know, I, I don't think they want to see a, a 270 mile an hour pro mod, you know, they don't want to see, they don't, you know, they, they don't want it. They don't want to see a 260 Pro Mod. They're, they don't. They don't want to see fuel cars going so fast because it comes down to safety. No, I mean they they always they didn't want fuel cars going over back. I don't even know how many years ago now. 330 miles an hour was like the magic number. Then they went over 330, and then they clipped their wings and they took, you know, blower driveway from them. Then they took and they took um, started putting rev limiters in them, clipped them that way, clipped them that, and then they figured out you know how to go faster down low and they kept bringing them back, pulling them back. Finally, they chut, you know, they changed it to a thousand mile racing and guess how fast they're going now. <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, you just, it's, that's what those teams want to do. And now I think that part of why you're, I'm hundred percent agreeance with you. They've taken the approach of, of uh, starting to limit the parts, you know, and try and, and, you know, make that kind of the equalizer and keep them, keep them pulled back. So they're, just out there racing, but it takes, the problem is it kind of takes the guys, the ingenuity out of the sport, right? I mean, the guys who are doing all that development work and testing and trying new things and learning stuff. And, and, and a lot of that stuff had trickle down effect into the other stuff. Um, you know, it, it kind of poured down and, and 
a lot of that work is kind of gone and because they're making their own parts and not and not buying them so then before you'd help develop something to figure something out and then you'd tell that manufacturer hey let me have exclusivity for three six months something like that and they would and then they'd release it and then everyone would have it so you'd you know and now they make their own stuff and so when they get it you know they're ahead of the curve but no one else gets it later because unless you can see it and figure out how to copy it or put it to your use you know it's changed you know the whole sports evolved tremendously you know there's no doubt about it all the way down from bracket racing all the way. i mean we got million dollar bracket races whoever thought we'd have a million dollar bracket race yeah yeah who who would have ever thought that a bracket racer could make as much if not more than the nhra top fuel champion does in one weekend exactly That's going crazy going 12 rounds they can make that much money. I, we had Jeff Verdi on the show and he was like, I, you know, you know, it's like fight club. You don't talk about fight club. You don't talk about the splits. And I just was like, you know, I don't want to know how much, just tell me how the process worked. He explained the little splits process. I'm like, these guys are the smartest people in drag racing. They've got to figure it out. <laughs> yep. Yep. They like, do. like a lot of heads up guys laugh at them all, you know, bracket racers. I'm like, yeah, but these guys are making like they're making money. You're oh, yeah. you're you're losing money to go lose money. Like let yep. that sink in for a second, guys. Yeah, they're making they're making money and they're also as much, you know, as much money as they can make and then they're also that's helping them get to the next race too, the next big dollar race so they can do it all over again, you know. And and some of these cats are doing it with vehicles that don't cost, you know, fifty thousand dollars it's it's insane yeah it is it's crazy but you know when you're when you know your stuff and you're good you know um it's it's hard to beat those guys especially when they've spent a lot of time with their vehicles and they got a lot of runs under their belt and granted watching bracket racing painful not for me some guys will do it me i can't watch you know 12 hours of it i can watch stock super stock super comp like an nhra show i could do that parking in front of motor mania watching it all day ain't gonna happen but they don't you know that it's that's a participant sport now me when i'm behind the wheel of the car i don't have the money to spend on ends up racing but bracket racing wise it's one of the hardest things you're going to do end of story right no there's no doubt about it it's you know, I've, I've bracket raced very little. It's not for me. I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. I don't knock the people do it. I, I, I mean, I'm very, I'm very, I guess, humbled when I see guys who are very good at it. I, I, you know, my hat's off to them because it's, it's not easy. That's for sure. Data, data nerds. Those guys look at everything on a car to optimize it for what they're trying to do. And is it the fastest? No, but you know what? They can look at their weather app and they'll tell you this car is going to run XXX this pass with a one. And mm-hmm. it does it. And it's crazy. It is. It's yeah. They're, they're a special kind of a drag racer for sure, but there's a lot of them out there that are good. It isn't like there's just one guy too. No. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a few out there that are very good. So it's, it's a, definitely a unique deal. Now, one of the cool things about having you on the show is we can talk some turbo tech because, you know, that is really, it's like for street racing, street cars, it's the power adder of choice these days. Pro Charger is making its strides in a lot of other areas, but a lot of your street cars these days, you know, it seems like the formula is buy LS, put LS in car, put turbo on it, go fast. When someone decides that they want to try to partake in this formula, what do they need to keep in mind when they're shopping for a turbo? And it's not, and it is not by the biggest one by far, is it? That's actually a problem I fight on a daily basis is, you know, I try to explain to guys, you know, you know, we make worth of, of on more than one car, a 420 inch pushrod motor and an X style car. We make north of 2200 on more than one application of the back wheels seeing it done with a single 88. Um, you know, I, I try to explain to guys that it's, you know, it's volumetric efficiency and they, you know, you say that word and it kind of throws them off to begin with, but it's just the amount of air the engine can process and the turbo can process. And then it's matching those two things up to give you what your desired level of horsepower is. 
So they always want the biggest, you know, I want, you know, 108s, 110s, one whatever. I mean, they want these big turbos. And um, fortunately for the, for, and it works like this with all the turbo companies, frankly, the frame size we run in when we're making big power, you know, the, the GT55 Garrett or the Pro Mod Precision or we call ours an H4 at Hearts, um, you know, you can go all the way from an 80 millimeter compressor all the way up to a 110 millimeter compressor in the same general format. So I try to explain to you guys, look, you got this window to play with. Let, let, why don't you start with my recommendation, even though it's smaller than what you're asking for. And then if we got to upgrade you, you know, I'll take care of you and, and you know, it only cost you a few hundred bucks and we'll upgrade you to the size you think you need. And we'll go from there, but let's just try it out here because as much as a bigger compressor wheel has the ability to compress more air, it also brings along with it the same amount of resistance to compress the air. So it's a paddle wheel, right? And like I tell people, like if you were in the water and you were and you were trying to swim, you know, and you and I could size your flippers, but you only needed to go 10 miles an hour, you wouldn't want flippers that are five feet long, but you but you want the biggest ones you can get. Well, you'd get real tired real fast. You'd exert an absorbent amount of energy trying to achieve your goal. Whereas you could take a 12 inch flipper and, and do the same thing and achieve your goal and have, you know, much better results and get further and use less energy. So that's, that's what I try to explain to them. And then the drive wheel, you know, we like to run those as large as we can to maximize the flow and drive that uh, the compressor wheel. So, and it, and the formula works out well, um, you know, in most applications, so, but they see things, they don't, you know, you get guys who are in unlimited classes who pay attention to cars that are in class rules. And so they say, well, this guy's got this size turbo. Well, the rules limit him to this size turbo or the rules let him run whatever. And um, when you're in an unlimited style deal, when you're running this no time stuff and this, a lot of grudge, um, seen a lot of interest out of the no prep stuff and the grudge stuff, the no time stuff. Um, I've sold several turbos to the Carolina no time guys down there with some of them classes. They got a pretty cool all steel, all glass class down there that I think is pretty neat that I didn't even know about. Um, but after I read the rules and talked to some of the competitors, I'm like, that's a pretty cool class. Oh, it is. Um, it, it's really cool. The cars you see in that are definitely pretty, they're, they're clean. They're nice. Yeah, no, it's, it was a neat, I mean, Lance did a good job with that, you know? And so, but, um, you know, like I said, I, I agree. The biggest thing about turbos is it doesn't need to be bigger. Um, you know, you just needs to be sized correctly. It's no different than all the other parts in your engine. If your heads are too big for on one side and not the other, if you got too big of an intake versus your exhaust valve or port, you can get an image, can't get it out kind of thing. You know, or if, you know, it just doesn't have enough, you know, cylinder pressure to make the power to, to fill the port or do whatever. I mean, it's just, it's all the same shit. It's just sizing, you know? And, you know, what are, what are some of the, the next big advancements we're going to see in turbo technology? You know, what, what, what's on the horizon do you think that's going to make turbos take that next step? Um, of the things I can talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah say, I what, what you could talk about. <laughs> I would say really just you're, you're going to see, you know, all these guys are pushing each other to be better at compressor wheel design, turbine wheel design, the aerodynamics, um, you know, you know, we play with the thickness of the blades, you know, we want to find the balance between, between um, durability and performance, right? You know, the thinner I can make that blade, you know, the better, but, you know, I can accelerate the wheel faster. There's a point of diminishing returns when the thing self implodes. So um, one thing that I've learned that I didn't really pay attention to in my prior career path or my prior place of employment, I should say is, and I seen it and it's funny because I'm a data guy, right? And I really didn't pay that much attention to turbo shaft speed. Um, and now over at Hearts, we pay attention to it a lot. And um, we do a lot of in-house testing. We got our own dyno, we got several engines. Um, and we, there's a lot to be had by knowing the shaft speed. We know the window that the charger is happy in. Um, and, and we've, Pretty much all of our customer cars currently in drag racing have shaft speed sensors on them hooked up and we use that data not only to help in development but to help with the tuning of the car 
you know, you know, customer bolt went on and call us up and be like, man, saying, you know, doesn't perform like you, like I thought it would. Oh, well, what's the boost? What's the back pressure? What's the shaft speed? And then they find out it's like, well, we got a major problem here. This thing's running like 30,000 RPM under where it should be. And so we did some research and looked at it and found, you know, that, that the exhaust really wasn't exactly how it should be and had them change the exhaust around and do it kind of the way we recommend. And next thing you know, boom, you know, and now it's quicker, faster, more boost. I mean, spools, all the above. It does what we said it would do. So um, the, the shaft speed is, is, a, is a tremendous tool, um, but I think it's overlooked in the drag racing world quite frequently. Now, Hearts, you guys are the ones that make like the big old honking turbos that the no prep guys have used, right? Yeah. Yeah, we make the big, I'll say in the range of 140, 145 millimeter singles um, that came out of the basically the tractor pulling world. Um, yeah, like Larson and Birdman and, and, and Will Hoyt and uh, Eric Bain all have them, that, that big single. I, I was going to go with that because it, it was funny. You, you talk about racers and rules and how they look at things. And I always joke with, you know, you get these conversations, you know, who's the baddest racer, who's this, who that. And I said, listen, if there's one person that you do not want to piss off in the drag racing world is Larry Larson. Don't tell him he can't do something because he's going to look at your rule book and your tech guy, your rule maker is probably not as smart as what he is. There's a distinct possibility or he's going to, he's going to outthink them for a minute. And that, yeah. that's what cracks me up about Larry is, you know, they, they kept trying to take away his toys. You know, Larry says, hold my mustache, watch this. And he shows up like he sent us pictures of this turbo. I'm like, bro, did you steal that off a pulling tractor? He goes, well, well, yeah, it is. And then it was, well, that's not going to work. That's stupid. And then it worked. Oh, you know, yeah. is, is someone like Larry, when he starts questioning your rules, does that, does that make you, does that make your palms sweat at all? Um, well, normally it would, um, but I'm actually very good friends with him. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, no, him and I have a lot of rules discussions and, um, you know, he's one of the people I'm kind of in my pocket that helps me with some real stuff if I have been a bit of a quandary. But, um, but, uh, oh, look, Jeff Trick is calling me right now. <laughs> he's getting his new, he's putting his car back together to run uh, factory showdown stuff. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. He's just on a dyno, but, um, um, no, but Larry is that guy. I mean, like when he showed up with the S10 originally for Drag Week and then when he, you know, like so, then the turbo, then the Cadillac, because then they were trying to ban a truck, and then uh, so he just went and got a stock body car and said, "Here you go." Rolled up the stock car and said, "Stock dimension, stock body parts, nothing aftermarket on it." Now what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> At which point that rules guy probably went, "Oh, great, 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 exactly. great." <laughs> and what are you going to throw at me next? No, yeah. the big single stuff is pretty neat. Um, got several going in Pro 275. There's already a couple over there. Got a few more coming out soon. Uh, Roger Holder's brand new car coming out of Reese. It's got to be a 66 Chevy 2. It's got a big Noonan motor with one of our big singles on it. Um, it'll be pretty neat. Liberty with a with a Bruno in it. So it's going to be a pretty unique combination, but uh, it's got the potential to definitely be a record-setting winning car. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I've seen them posting pictures of that car online, and Roger always has nice stuff. He has smart people working with him, and it's always interesting to see what he's going to come out with. And you know, it's you see pictures of that car, and you know, that thing's practically already sitting on the ground. And it'll be interesting with with a big single in that class. What you know, how they're able to make that work. You know what? Because I think that you know, with the resurgence and what we're seeing with guys doing with pro chargers now, well now. You're gonna, I think you're going to see more of that with turbos now as like the rules evolve a little bit. The technology comes along. You're like, well, maybe we can do something with a big single. Yeah, the fear was um, with the big single stuff was just people were worried about spooling it. That's really what we see for fear. Um, there's really nothing else. I mean, it may make plenty of power. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen Larson's thing make 4,000 of the back wheels. Um not even at max boost. I'm not going to say it wasn't close to max boost, but it wasn't at max boost. So um, on fuel techs dyno. So, but 
the the fear was always can we spool it um and and larson has proven i mean finney's car spools fast all the guys are running it they figured it out it was there was a learning curve it wasn't easy um and then i got some more guys out there who are who are up and comers that are kind of thinking outside the box with how to spool it and They've, they've I've gotten some questions recently about the way they want to try and do stuff. And I said, well, that's worth a try. It's kind of a unique and interesting outlook and it, it might work, um, but time will tell. You got to go out there and test it. But yeah, that was the biggest fear is just will it spool? And and it does. I mean, when you pack all that exhaust, you know, and flow plays a big role in it um, and how you run the headers and things of that nature do play a big role in it. Is just beyond the tuning of how you run the timing and the fuel and stuff like that. I think the big thing we're seeing now is, you know, you mentioned that the innovation might've been taken away from the fuel guys, but it hasn't been taken away from the small tire outlaw heads up guys. They, these guys will come up with some wild ideas and try just about anything just to see if it'll work. Yeah. I'll tell you, and, and I don't know if it would work, um, but you know, in, in Europe and the world rally cross stuff, the turbocharged stuff over there, you know, they use a fresh air anti-lag system where they actually draw fresh air to the, into the exhaust and plumb fuel and burn fuel in there simultaneously. And it actually generates more heat. It's almost like a miniature turbine engine. And literally, um, when they go into a turn, they've got them set up and they, they run off shaft speed where they'll push the clutch and come into a turn and come out of the turn and the turbo will still be at whatever they wanted it to be at for RPM and boost. If it's, you know, 30, 40, 50 pounds or whatever, the boost level they're running at loses no boost. And they can make instant boost with the turbocharger because they can basically drive at whatever speed they want based off how much fuel and air they got um, burning in the pipe. That's wild. And probably there's some drag racers are going to hear this going, huh? I want yeah, like if you Google it, there's a bunch of YouTube videos. You can see all kinds of stuff about fresh air and I like this is gonna debut, and then there's gonna be a bunch of guys going out to their shop with a plasma cutter and a TIG welder and a drink. I wanna see it. I'm, I'm challenging someone. Send me some pictures and videos. Let just, me know if I can help you. Just just tell the Bruder brothers, bet you won't. <laughs> there you go. And John Sears is going, please, please don't, please don't do this to me, please. <laughs> Well, Roger, our, our time here is coming to an end, and I like to give my guests their opportunity to channel their inner John Force and tell people where to find them out, what's going on, you know, where they can learn more about them. So, you know, Roger, the floor is yours. Tell people where they can learn, you know, where you're going to be at, you know, what you're involved with and what you got going on. Yeah, I mean, as, as most people know, my involvement is split between NMCA and NMRA these days as tech director and then, you know, my role over at Hearts Turbochargers. And um, so like this weekend, I'm going to the PDRA race as a representative for Hearts. I'm going to have two cars there running my stuff, Mark Metters out of the XRE stable, and then Jeff Rudolph um, running, they'll both be running Pro Boost. So pretty excited about that. And then we got our Super Bowl race coming up for NMRA and MCA in uh, St. Louis, Madison area a couple weeks after that. That's our big event. Pretty excited about that. But uh you know, obviously in these in today's world, social media is the king of keeping up with where everyone's going to be and what's going on. And that's where we channel most of our stuff through at Hearts and, and uh, Pro Media. So, and, and folks, I'll throw a plug out there for Pro Media too. It doesn't matter if it's the NMCA or the NMRA, go to one of their events. Like it is what I call, it is what I call a buffet of horsepower. You will see a little bit of everything, especially in an NMCA race, because they got everything from Pro Mods the mm -hmm. stock and super stockers, bracket racing, true street cars. Like literally, if you do not see it at an NMCA race, it probably doesn't exist. So in the race coming up in Madison, our Super Bowl race, um, we're going to have both sanctions there. And then on top of it, at the end of the race, we take an NMRA squares off against the NMCA. So, and that's the weekend of May 15th. So, the that's even a more spectacular race to watch and there's a lot more going on and a lot more up for grabs but uh yeah i mean i had i will tell you this todd tuttero who i've known for a long time um and, and i'm friends with he came up to me he was in in bradenton um working on abbott's pro mod and he came up and he ended up driving because because he got because abbott got sick and couldn't drive and uh, Todd came up to me and he said, you know what, I got to tell you something. He said, I've been to a lot of racetracks. I've been around a lot of sanctioning bodies. He says, I've never in my life been to a race where I was treated so well. 
not only as just an individual, but as a team. And he says, I got to tell you, my hat's off to you guys. You do, you know, you guys work really hard to make sure we feel very well accommodated. And I thought that's a pretty, I mean, I've heard that before from other racers and, and I'm not discounting them, but I know the amount of exposure Todd Tudorow's had around the world and the places he's been and places he's raced. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big compliment. And you know what? We'll end things on that, Roger. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to AFR Pro Charger Performance Distributors for sponsoring the show. Roger, we will see you at the track very soon. All right. Thanks, Brian.